Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. Well, this morning we have Adam Heather speaking to us. If you're not uh, familiar with Adam, he is the Operations Director of 24-7 Prayer International, and he and Hannah, his wife, who is also here, uh, lead the evening service just across the road at Founders, a brilliant uh, service. And one of the things I really, uh, really respect about Adam is um, he just has extraordinary wisdom, really. Uh, there's been a number of times when I've just sort of found myself stuck in a bit of a conundrum, and I've just thought... I need to call Adam and just hear his perspective on it. And he just has this amazing ability to bring a different perspective and bring real wisdom to a situation. So, and I love hearing him speak. So, Adam, we're thrilled to have you. Why don't we welcome him? <laughs> Let me pray for you. Father, I want to thank you so much for Adam. Thank you for his wisdom. Thank you for his insight. Lord, we want to pray that you would speak powerfully through him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Good morning. Uh, greetings from Woking. Woking send their love. Um, and so today we are carrying on our In Christ series. Um, fifth week. Fifth out of sixth. So we're kind of drawing a little bit to the end of our In Christ series. And I hope you've been enjoying it. So far we've looked at what does it mean to be forgiven, what does it mean to be renewed? What does it mean to be chosen in Christ? And today we're going to be looking at what does it mean to be sanctified in Christ? And to kind of do that, we're going to be looking at the same passage of Scripture that Bill touched on last week, which is 2 Corinthians 5. And so if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to be reading from verse 16. So it says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this is our passage for today. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so, kind of, there's these two kind of concepts going on. What does it mean to be the righteousness of God? And what does it mean to be sanctified? And so last week, Bill did an amazing job talking about what does it mean to be renewed, about who we are and whose we are and who is with us. And it's the truth that as soon as we give our life to Jesus, we get God's righteousness. And by that, it means right standing with God, that God sees us as perfect. He sees us as who the person we're trying to be. 
But then held in tension with that is this invitation for us to kind of go on this journey of sanctification. And what I mean by sanctification is that the day-by-day choices that we make to live a holy life, to live a life where we look more and more like Jesus, where we begin to act and think and operate exactly as Jesus did. And so in lots of ways, sanctification is all about holiness, and holiness is not a word that we use a lot in culture anymore, is it? And so what I want to do to kind of introduce us to holiness is I want to do a really quick whistle-stop tour through the Old Testament. And what, what, what was holiness in the Old Testament? And then kind of land in what does that mean for us today? And so we're going to be carrying like a fair amount of scripture today, but it's going to be wild and it's going to be fun, Okay. And so the first thing to know is that holiness in the Bible is not about a list of moral do's and don'ts. It does kind of include that, but at its root, holiness, the word, was actually meant set apart. It meant other. It meant unique. And so when Jesus says and kind of that God is holy, 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 whenever you see the word three times in the Bible, it means perfect. So what it's saying is holy, holy, holy. God is perfectly set apart. He is perfectly other. He is perfectly unique. There is no being like God. And so when he asks us to be holy, what he's inviting us to do is to be set apart unto God. But the thing with God's holiness in the Old Testament was that it was so intense, it was so good, that it actually became dangerous to everything that was impure. And so we see this in Moses. And here's a photo that I took. It's a painting, it's a painting. And so Moses, and so Moses goes and he sees this burning bush and he goes to it. And then the voice of God comes out and says, come no closer, for it is on holy ground that you stand and you have to take your sandals off. So it's kind of that invitation, that first time that we see this paradox of God's holiness and man's unholiness coming together and it being so, so powerful, so intense that it is dangerous that Moses can't come any closer. And then this kind of, this theme of God's holiness gets explored more when we look at the temple. And right in the center of the temple, there was a room called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies would have been the kind of the focus points for God's presence on earth. You know, it was where the most intense form of God's presence was. And so people couldn't approach that. Only certain people could approach it because it was so holy. It was so good, but it was so dangerous. And so what we have in the Old Testament is basically it talks about these two forms of purity, these two forms of, you know, the answer to how do we approach God's good presence without it being dangerous is to become pure. And the kind of the Old Testament talks about two forms of purity. The first one is like a moral purity. It's like our individual choices. And we kind of understand that. That makes sense. We understand, you know, making good choices and not bad choices. But it also talks a lot about a second form of purity, which it calls ritual purity. Okay. And ritual purity is quite different because ritual purity in the Old Testament was basically you having to separate yourself from anything related to death. And so that would have been, you know, dead bodies, dead animals. It would have been sickness. It would have even been some bodily fluids. And the idea is that you had to separate yourself from these things, not because they were sinful, 
but because it's kind of like if moral purity is an unholiness inside of you, ritual purity is like an unholiness on you. And if you entered God's presence when there was an unholiness on you, it was dangerous because he was so pure that unholiness couldn't come into contact with him. Okay, so that's kind of the story. And so Leviticus, that kind of confusing books with all those kind of commandments, is basically outlining to God's people how to know when they're impure and steps to become pure so they could re-enter God's presence. But the beautiful thing is, as with so much in the Bible, from the Old Testament through to Jesus and the New Testament, there's this unfolding narrative of the way in which God, holy God, interacts with unholiness in the world. And it's framed beautifully for us with two major visions by the prophets. The first one, I've got another photo. It's this guy. It's a painting again. This is Isaiah. And so... Isaiah has this vision where he arrives and he's in the temple. He's in the Holy of Holies. And he knows that he shouldn't be there. He knows that this is going to cause death to him. And so he cries out, woe to me. Woe to me because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Right? But then something really interesting happens. An angel called a seraphim takes a coal and it flies up to Isaiah And it places the coal on his lips. And he says this, and this is profound. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What is really important is there's a shift that's happened here for the very first time. And the shift is that the whole thing is being turned upside down. When in the Old Testament, if I came into contact with anything that was impure, it made me impure. Suddenly what we're seeing is that God's holiness doesn't destroy. It transforms. And so that which is holy turns that which isn't and makes it holy. Right? Can you see how this, this vision is this unfolding narrative and it's preaching Jesus to us? Because one day in the future of Isaiah's time, a man would be born. And instead of him being contaminated by the world, he would bring healing to everything. This is the first shift that we see and it's profound. But then there's another vision and it's this one. The next slide. This is definitely not a photo. Um, and so this is Ezekiel's river. And if you remember the story of Ezekiel's river, what happens is that the river flows from the temple, from the Holy of Holies, and it flows along and it brings life and it brings healing all the way to the Dead Sea where it brings the Dead Sea to life. So what's interesting is that Jesus then comes and he says, I am the fulfillment of these prophecies. And I am the human embodiment of the temple, and not just me, but also all of my disciples. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, out of you will flow rivers of living water. So what's he saying? He's saying a new season has come. From now on, unholiness. Don't separate yourself from unholiness. From now on, live a holy life. And what you're going to find is that out of you and out of this place of holiness, there's going to come a river which is going to, instead of being contaminated by death, it's going to bring life and love and healing to everything that is deaf and dying and sick. Do you see this unfolding narrative that God is saying? And so this is the season that we live in. This is the calling of our lives to live sanctified, to live holy. And out of that place, there to be something that comes out of us that brings healing and wholeness to everything. And so the question is, how? How do we live 
How do we live holy? How do we grow in sanctification? And this is where we come back to Corinthians. Because this is the exciting part. Your holiness is not just based around your willpower. Because we have to remember that the gospel is not just about what God does for us. It is also about what God does in us. He is making us a new creation. And it's important that we plumb the depths of this reality because mentality informs reality, right? And we know that because Paul says, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Or what's he saying? He says that often you manifest externally your thought patterns about yourself internally. So as your brain, as your thought processes are transformed, what you're going to find as they're renewed, the whole of you becomes transformed. Bill Johnson says it really well where he says, the greatest battleground in the universe is the six inches between your ears. I love that quote. But this is countercultural for us, even more so than for Paul, because postmodernism says experience forms truth. But Paul disagrees, and he says, just you wait and see that your truth will form your experience. The greatest battleground is the six inches between your ears. So 2 Corinthians 5.17, I think it's going to come up. Go back one. Okay. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Notice the tense here. If anyone is in Christ, he is already a new creation. The old has already passed away and the new has already come. So you are a new creation if you follow Jesus this morning. But what sort of new? Well, unlike English, Greek has two different words for the word new. One is neos. And the thing with neos is that the emphasis of new is new with respect to time. Okay? So it's like young and youthful. It's new as in it's recently created. But there's a second word, and that's kainos. And that's new with respect to form or quality. So it's a different substance. It's a different form. It's a different quality. And that's what's new about it. And so going forward, if we go to the next slide, this is neos. Right? You've got your favorite pair of trainers, and you wear them, and you wear them, and you wear them, and they get worn out, and suddenly you decide, these are disgusting, and I need some new trainers. And so you go to the shop, and you buy a brand new pair of Navy Converse, and you have some Neos Converse. Exactly the same, just new, newly created. Okay, another example, next page. Neos, this is the car. Your car gets old fails its MOT, blah, 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 and you decide you really love that car, you're going to get a brand new one. So you get this. Okay, Kanos is this. Next slide. Okay? This is the gospel. So Kanos is that it is new, but it has changed form. It has changed quality. Right? And so we need to pay attention. Paul has both of these words in his arsenal, in his lexicon, and what he chooses to use preaches his intention to us. Which one do you think he uses? Next slide. If anyone is in Christ, he is a kainos creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. 
So let me tell you what the gospel is not. The gospel is not that Jesus found you in the gutter, he picked you up, he dusted you off, and he said, go again. That would be good news. That would be great. But it's actually far more incredible than that. Because what Paul is actually telling us, what the gospel truly is, is that you were crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. And on that day, somehow in Christ, when he was crucified, you were crucified along with him. And that meant that you died. But it also meant that you were resurrected. And what was resurrected was a chaos creation, a new creation, a beautiful, new, upgraded, and different version. And this was prophesied in the Old Testament in the next slide. In Ezekiel, sorry, next slide. In Ezekiel it says, And I will give them an undivided heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove them from their heart of stone, and I will give them a heart of flesh. Right, so what God is not saying is that he didn't just take your heart, which was all sort of messy with sin, wipe it off and stick it back in and ask you to go again. He changed your heart and he replaced what was stony with a canos, new, fleshy heart. And so what's been upgraded? It's your very nature. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But this is important because the Bible makes something clear. We were no match for sin. Right? If there was some cosmic wrestling match where it pitted your willpower against sin's power, the Bible's clear. Sin would win every single time. Why? Because there's no answer within yourself. But now what Paul is saying is that that old person was crucified. And what has been reborn and resurrected is a new person with a new nature which now has an empowerment towards a holy life. I like to picture it like kind of Jesus out there and behind him is this slipstream which now you can step into towards this sanctified life, towards becoming like Jesus. Wesley put it in a really good way. He used to say, the gospel is not simply Jesus coming along and telling you to change your deeds. The gospel is God coming along and changing your very desires. Isn't that beautiful? Just coming along and changing your very desires. Um, I want to make a little announcement on behalf of suspense, me and my wife in that this year we are expecting our first little baby. Thank you. So on the 4th of July, Independence Day, we lose our independence. <laughs> and um, we're very excited about that. And one quote that we've both always loved is that it takes a village to raise a child. And so we are so grateful for this village that we call home. For you guys, for Emmaus Road Church, and um, we're so excited to lean onto all of your strengths as we do our best to try and raise this little guy or this little girl. But what is fun is that we have this app. And this little app, every week, it tells us the changes that are happening to this little baby. And um, you know how it's growing and new things that are developing and everything. But it always does the size in relation to fruit. And so at the moment, we have a little baby mango, which is fun. My favorite was when we had a little baby jalapeno. But... Now it's a mango. But anyway, 
At the same time as it sort of talks through the changes that are happening in the baby, it also talks through the changes that are happening in the mother. And it's profound. It's stunning. Apparently, a mother goes through like 70 biological changes in trying to like create a space for this little baby. What I found so interesting about that is at the point the baby is conceived, it triggers this chain reaction that begins to fundamentally change the mother's internal environment to become a hospitable habitat for the little baby, right? New hormones, new chemicals, all sorts of things. Even the heart, like the heart has to move position and start beating harder to make a habitat where this baby's going to thrive. It's stunning. It's like the ultimate test in hospitality, right? which is easier for me to say. Um, but the same thing is true when we receive the Spirit, right? When we receive the Spirit and it says that it's going to come and take up residence inside of us, it starts a chain reaction that begins to change our internal environment and create a hospitable habitat for the Spirit, for the Holy Spirit. Right, And so for Hannah, it's biological, but for each of us, it's this kind of spiritual change. And as the spiritual change happens, it begins to affect everything. Our thought processes, our soul, our desires, our emotions, everything becomes become this kind of hospitable environment for the Holy Spirit. The gospel is not just what God does for us. Even if it was, that would be enough, but it's also what God does in us. And so the key, and I'm going to steal this line of Bill, it's not about trying to become something you're not. It's about finally becoming something that you are. And so I know that there are some people here who might have been struggling for years with something. And this sounds awfully good, but awfully ethereal and religious. And they're thinking, what difference does that really make? Well, Paul in Romans gives probably what is closest to his apologetic of his faith. And through Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, and I'm not going to read it, but we, in these theology nights we kind of do, and we go a little bit deeper into this. But between Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul basically says the same thing over and over again. He says, consider yourself dead. He says, consider yourself dead to sin. Consider yourself that really something happened on that day. Galatians 2.20, on that moment when you were crucified with Christ, something died. And so what's Paul saying? He's saying that at one time you weren't in the driving seat and sin reigned over you, but no more. Now something has changed and now sin no longer reigns over you. It's interesting, like consideration, to consider is something that happens in your mind, Right? Mentality informs reality. So as we begin to kind of be possessed by this truth that actually something died. Do you know the amazing thing? There's a lot of freedom to be found in death. Like there's so much freedom in death is what Paul is saying. And it's freedom from the power of sin and it's also freedom from guilt and shame. That thing, whatever it is that kind of holds you captive and makes you feel so guilty and so ashamed, that's okay. The person who did that thing died with Jesus. And this whole new Kainos creation was resurrected as a brand new, spotless person. One of the most powerful tools of the enemy is that what he likes to come along and do is trying to convince you that you're powerless. Jesus is always trying to make you feel powerful. The enemy is always trying to make you feel powerless. 
And so what he says is he brings along a temptation. He says, you're powerless to this temptation. And then when you've struggled with it for long enough, what he then does is he then ties it to your identity. And he starts saying, you know what? You're not just a person who gets angry. You're an angry person. You're not just a person who occasionally struggles with lust. You're a lustful person. But Jesus comes along and says, no. That person was crucified. You're no longer an angry person. Now you're a godly person who, yeah, still struggles with temptation sometimes, but you are a godly kainos creation, and you have to consider yourself dead to sin. Pete, in week one, said a line that's really stuck with me, that we have to be a people who believe our beliefs and don't follow our feelings. How many people here feel crucified? Like none, when I don't. But the Bible says I was, which means it's true. It's not a feeling, but it's a fact. And so we don't always feel this stuff, but it doesn't mean it's true. And so we have to let our truth inform our experience and not the other way around. And this process doesn't happen automatically. You're right, no one's going to stand up here and say that every Christian is free of temptation. And that's crazy. Our own experience doesn't suggest that. And also, the Bible wouldn't make any sense. If that was true, then why are there so many passages about kind of commandments and encouragements and ways to make holy and pure choices? But what it is saying is that you're in the driving seat. And so now you have the power to throw off all those things that so easily entangle us. Telling us that that's not really who we are and inviting us to step into who we really are. I wonder, like, what's the area of your life What's kind of the addiction or the destructive behavior, the thing that you feel most enslaved to? What's the Holy Spirit saying about that? What's he saying about the fact that he lives inside of you, the fact that you are a new creation, that the old has gone and the new has come? I have this friend, and he's married, and he had this like real crippling pornography issue, and he hated it. And I hated talking to him about it just because he felt like so much guilt and so much shame and he couldn't be free of it. But one turn, he heard a message a little bit like this. And the next time he was tempted and he was sat at his computer, he said to himself, no, do you know what? I consider myself dead to this, dead to this sin. And he shut his laptop and thus began his journey towards freedom. Right? The biggest battleground is the six inches between your ears. Do you feel like, do you hear this truth? Um, one preacher, I think really helpfully, he talks about the example of um, President Lincoln during the Civil War when he did the Emancipation Proclamation. Right, That's a tongue twister. Emancipation Proclamation. And he suddenly set all of the slaves free. But what was interesting is some of those slaves had only ever been slaves. They had no idea what did freedom look like. How do you live in freedom? Like, what even is that? And so suddenly, that although they were technically free... Whenever their old slave driver would come along, they'd cower in fear and they'd still choose to do what that person said. And the same is true of us. That's what the enemy would like to convince us. That those same temptations, those same desires, those same things that kind of tormented us come along and we don't realize that we're free. But what God says is that Jesus declared an emancipation proclamation. And now our journey is not about breaking free. It's about stepping into the freedom that we've been given. Um, there is the students 
um, we have an incredible student team here at the church, like Ben and Jess and Jess and Nick. And they're going away on their student weekend in a few weeks' time. And so the topic that they've chosen for their student weekend is this. If Jesus says, for freedom's sake, I set you free, how free can one person become? Right? It's a stunning question. Like, how free can one person become? And I've been thinking about that quite a lot. And it reminded me of this guy. Roger Bannister. And you might have heard of Roger Bannister, but basically he was a runner in the 1950s. And at the time that he was running, he was a professional runner, no human had ever broken the four-minute mile. Had never been done. And when people were thinking about that, doctors said no human will ever be able to break the four-minute mile. And in fact, it could be lethal to, to even try. But Roger Bannister disagreed. And in 1954, at Oxford University, this man, Roger Bannister, ran the mile in three minutes, 59 seconds, and 40 milliseconds. But what's interesting now is if you look on Wikipedia, which is where I find all of my running stats, it says it is now the standard of all male professional middle-distance runners to have to be able to run the four-minute mile right? It's 70 years. That which was humanly impossible has become the standard because one man believed more humanity and decided to redefine human potential. Like, how free can one person be? It's interesting. I don't know the answer to that, but I want to work it out. Like, I want a depth. I want to say, God, if you set me free, like, if that's why you came, if that's one of the reasons, then I want to try and be as free as I possibly can. And I know that some of that is about stepping into this truth of my new creation reality. And so I just want to finish off by giving you some really simple tools, which I think are the next page. Feast on truth. The Bible says, take every thought captive to Christ. And I think in really simple language, that means anything that doesn't line up with what Christ says about you, just don't listen to it. And so we've got to like become possessed. We've got to like feast and constantly fill ourselves with this truth of who we are. Because otherwise that we're, we're led by our feelings when actually we're meant to be led by our beliefs and our truths. And so what tools can you do to put this kind of truth into your life? Second, choose your focus. I think choosing your focus is about setting the conditions that Christ might grow within you. So in Philippians 4.8, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Right? Like, choose your focus. What kind of diet are you having in terms of these things? Like, are you filling your mind with all of those things on that list. And finally, prioritize your worship. Because whatever holds our attention and our affection sets our destination. Right? Or an easier way to say it is you become like whatever you worship. And we see that in the world, you know, if people like decide they really love some celebrity and they follow them on social media and they watch them and all these things and suddenly they start talking like them and dressing like them, like it's worship. And we become like whatever we worship. And so as we worship Jesus, as we meet with Jesus, then we are transformed to look more and more like Jesus.
And so kind of coming full circle all the way back to that river analogy and this call that Jesus puts on us to be holy people out of which streams of living water would flow. I wonder what it would look like for this community to step further into this truth of who we are as new creations. And then from that place, go out into Guildford and Woking into our schools and workplaces and everything. And living this holy, sanctified life, we bring healing, we bring wholeness, we bring deliverance to every area that is sick or dying. And so I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, God, you know that the quiet battles that every single person faces in this room, those triggers of our temptation, those struggles, those things, God. And so, Holy Spirit, with your incredible grace, we just ask that you come right now. Lord Jesus, would you whisper the truth of who you've called us to be? Would you remind us again, Lord, that the gospel is not just about what you're doing for us, as amazing as that is, but it's also what you're doing inside of us, the way you're changing and shaping and growing us. And so, Lord Jesus, as we step into this truth, would you help us to live holy, sanctified lives? We thank you, God. Amen.